It's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Tony. I have the privilege of serving as pastor in this place, being able to be a part of what God is doing here. It's just been such a fun adventure. Uh, Jim is over in the corner, and if you are a little person and you would like to hang out with some other little people, gather with Mr. Jim over there. He's excited to hang out with you. Now, if you are just joining us, uh, it's good to have And we're hitting chapter, uh, we're journeying through the Gospel of John, and we're hitting chapter 14, so it's called the Upper Room Discourse, 13 through 17, as Jesus is chatting with his, some of his closest friends and followers, and he's trying to lean into, all right, what do I want to say before I am crucified? Now, one of the things I want to say, so I came into this text, we're middle of 14 on Monday morning, and I read it through, and I was like, I went over to Aaron, Aaron's office, the guy who was just praying a minute ago, I went into his office, I was like, this is like really deep and like kind of heady. So just want to say at the beginning, one of our like hopes here is to take the scriptures seriously as we're trying to walk through them. This one is going to be a little more like heady, cognitive. So just put your thinking cap on for the morning. Uh, I will do my best to try and make it as like applicable and down to earth, but just forewarned, there's a lot of moving pieces this morning. Uh, but I think we're going to try as we always do every Sunday is make it relevant to everyday life by the end. So just trust me in the process. We'll get there, but it might feel a little big picture as we go through. This text, we're going to divide up into five parts. There's sort of five intuitive little transitions. Uh, It's chapter 14, 15 through 31. So just at the stage a little bit, chapter 13 begins with Jesus washing feet, inviting that someone's going to deny me, uh, and I'm in a 14. And he's already said, hey, someone's going to betray me, someone's going to deny me, uh, and I'm going to leave, by the way. Then he starts chapter 14 with, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you, right? So... I'm going to be with you, right? Then he starts in the middle of 14 with this. This is part one, uh, 15 to 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you a helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. All right, so chapter or verse 15 reinforces a central theme of the upper room discourse, which is this a connection between love and obedience, this connection between intimacy and faithfulness. Now, in our cultural moment, we don't like this. This chafes with us a lot because we like to disconnect being from doing, right? So we like to disconnect our internal world from any kind of action that flows out of it. That's sort of one of our assumptions. In the New Testament, though, there's this push, and Jesus is often talking about this, right? A good tree bears what? Good fruit. Now, there is nuance, though, right? So he pushes back on the Pharisees. He's like, you guys are whitewashed tombs. Translated into a modern context, you're really beautiful on the outside, but you're dead within, right? So that's a little nuance. There's a little bit of a disconnection from Paul in Romans 7. He says, you know, in the tombs. Also, we see in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, he says, you know, I want to do these things, but I can't, Uh, right? So he's like, I'm trying to do this, but it doesn't work out the way I want. So he disconnects being from doing a little bit there too. But generally, the overarc of the New Testament is that being leads to doing, right? That our internal world flows out into faithfulness. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 15. If you love me, 
you will keep my commandments, right? There's a connection between love and faithfulness. Now, but we need to clarify a little bit because I think most of us, when you hear commandment, you think like ethics, at least I do. So I think, I'm not going to murder someone or I'm not going to steal. Okay, so if I love, I won't do that. But if you think, what are like the most known commandments in the world, right? The 10 commandments, right? And it does say, don't murder. But it also says, you know, love the Lord your God. You know, don't worship other gods. So it's not just ethics. Jesus, what we'll see, because this will repeat a few times in our text for today, verses 21, 23, and 24, he will reinforce this connection, but he'll say it in different ways. So here he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In a bit, he'll say, if you love me, you'll take seriously or obey my teaching. So what he's saying is, hey, not just you won't murder people, but you'll take seriously, some of which is God is a good father. Some of which is ethics, some of which isn't. Some of which is God is a good father. You should trust him. You'll take seriously all of these teachings. Now, in verse 16, as we go, so I'm telling you, this is going to be a little plotting, just so you know, but this is really important. Verse 16, Jesus mentions for the first time this helper, right? So he says, this helper is going to come, the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're familiar with Greek, helper is translated in as paraclete. Now, paraclete, if you're, depending on the Bible you're reading, it will actually just say paraclete. Now, paraclete is a Greek word, and it will happen five more times in this discourse, so I need to take a little bit of time to explain exactly what is going on here. So, parakletos is one called alongside, right? So, this helper is going to come, and what is he going to do? He's going to come alongside. In secular Greek, in the courtroom, they had the parakletos, and this was a person who would come in, and he was like a legal advisor, a helper, an advocate in the courtroom. So this isn't a lawyer per se, but it's someone who would like help you in your court proceeding. So he's saying, hey, a helper is going to come down, which we know is the Holy Spirit, right? The paraclete. Now, one level deeper. You ready? Think about this in these terms, but this is really another paraclete. Now, you might not have thought about this in these terms, but this is really important. If we're going to take the scripture seriously, what he says here, another paraclete. What does that mean? He is identifying as a paraclete or a helper or an advocate as well. You see this in John, 1 John 2.1. This is what John writes. If anyone sins, we have a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So Jesus is saying he is an advocate for us when he takes on human flesh and walks in the neighborhood with us. Then he ascends to the Father, and then he's at the Father's right hand, and he advocates for us there too, right? But the Holy Spirit is also sent down to advocate and paraclete for us on the ground when he ascends to be with the Father. Are you following me? Okay, that's two verses. (laughs) That's my wife. I always know her laugh. All right, verse 17. Jesus does a few things here. The first one that we need to pay attention to is the way he uses cosmos or world. He uses it two ways in this text. The first is those who oppose Jesus or don't believe in him, the world. It's also the environment in which we as witnesses of Jesus and Jesus, okay, about who the Father is. So it's both an environment and a people, okay? 
Then what he says, right, the Spirit is sent, and what, guess what? The world will not receive him. Why? Because he is the Spirit of truth. So the Spirit is the Spirit of truth in three ways. He's Spirit in origin. He comes from the Father, the one who is the truth of all things. Right? He is the Spirit of truth in character. He carries truthfulness wherever he goes. And three, in function. He is the one who leads God to truth, or leads people to truth. And this makes sense then, why the world would oppose right? Because the world is the one who doesn't receive the teaching of Jesus, so then would oppose the truth. Then Jesus says, in this context, the cosmos, where people are, your witness is going to be opposed, guess what? The Spirit or the Helper is going to walk alongside of you, right? And be inside of you, which brings us to 18 to 20. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Happening here. First, for a little bit, there are three primary promises that are happening here. First, Jesus says he will not leave the disciples, right? He will not abandon them. Right? I won't leave you orphans. He will leave, but then he will come back. Now, in verses 2 and 3, if you were here with us last week, Jesus says something like this, right? I'm going to leave you. I'm going to depart. He's going to be crucified, hang out for 40 days, ascend to the Father, and he's going to send the Spirit. But he says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. But don't worry, I'll come back. Now, it's worth stating here that Jesus is going to ascend to the Father. He's going to send the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit doesn't like replace Jesus right? Jesus will still come back even though the Spirit has come onto earth and in us. Second, he has this kind of odd statement. He's like, in a little while, sort of Jesus cryptic, you know, you will see me, but the world won't. Now, this is a departure. So, what we've been talking about so far is about Jesus going to the end of time and then returning, right? The, the second coming. This is not that reference. This is a reference to the resurrection, Right? So what happens? After Jesus uh, is crucified, buried, he is resurrected, then he appears to whom? Followers of his. Right? In a little while, you will see me, but the world won't. And third, he makes clear his life. Right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. When he is resurrected, right? the, the disciples will experience his life. Right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. We looked at that last week. And now when he is resurrected, they will know the Father is with him because how else could he be alive? Right? And then the life that he experiences in the rection will become the life that we experience and the disciples will experience that will flow through them that now flows through the resurrected body of Jesus. Which then brings us to part three. Right? This is 21 to 24. I warned you it was a little bit abstract. We'll get there. Just hang in with me. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, right? he is it. It is who loves me, right? Repeating verse 15. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. 
Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. All right. Verse 21 teases out verse 15, which we were talking about earlier. This connection between faithfulness and intimacy. It's faithfulness, faithfulness and love. That when we, right? And then there's this amazing line here, which is sort of adding on another layer. That when we love God and we are faithful to him, guess what? The Father reveals himself. So now you have this connection between love, faithfulness, and connection and intimacy with the Father who reveals himself to us. This is the same word. So in the first century, there was a Greek Bible called the Septuagint, and a lot of the New Testament is sort of connected. A lot of the writers of the New Testament are informed by the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. This word... This Greek word that's used right here, manifest or reveal, is the same word when Moses says in Exodus 33, God, reveal yourself to me. Reveal your glory. And guess what happens? He walks by him and Moses gets to see the glory of God. Same word. So just as I revealed myself to Moses in Exodus, so I will reveal myself to you. It's also the same word that's used in most of the resurrection appearances, right? So he's saying, guess what, guys? If you love me, if you stay sound, connect to my teaching, I'll reveal myself to you. You'll experience my glory and my goodness. One of the beautiful things here is when we get into verse 23 is this idea of, and as we're sort of, I will, God will abide with us, which we'll get to in a second, right? Verse 23, I will come, my Father and I will make a home in you, right? Connected, this revealing, this being with. Now, as is often the case in John, the disciples' misunderstanding becomes a springboard for further clarification of what's actually going on, right? So right here, Judas, not Iscariot, in case you were confused, he asks like, so why? Why are you revealing yourself to us and not the world? Now for us, as 21st century modern people, we think Judas is probably saying, well, don't you love the world? That's actually probably not what Judas is thinking, and I'll explain in a second. But just in case you were wondering that, John 3.16 says, hey, the Father loved the world so much, right, that he gave his one and only Son. So this isn't about the God, the Father, not loving the world. It's actually something else entirely. Judas is concerned. Remember, it's the eve of Passover, Passover echoes back to the Exodus. The Exodus is all about God rescuing his people and slamming the Egyptians. Judas really wants the Romans to be slammed. So when he says reveal yourself, he means like with a sledgehammer, right? Not like open arms. Judas is like, hey, when's the sledgehammer coming? I'm excited for this. Right? And then Jesus says in verse 23, sort of like pushing, I think, love me. His emphasis on love, right? Hey, guess what? If you love me, and we're not talking sledgehammer on the Romans, if you love me, you'll keep my word. And then he has this incredibly beautiful thing he says. He says, like, and you know, guess what? If you love me and you're paying attention to my word and my teachings, guess what? The Father and I are going to make a house in you. We're going to dwell with you. Now, there's a couple things going on here. Now, if you were with us last week, you know Jesus said, hey, guess what? Verses two and three. I am going to leave. I'm going to prepare a house for you, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you to my crib. I am going to take you to my house. And now in 23, he's saying, we're going to come and make our house in you. 
All right? Now we're going to go one step deeper again. House, meno, is dwelling, is also the word for abiding place. So what he is saying in both of these places, and if you've read John 15, you know this idea of abiding is really central. Same word carries throughout. So guess what? I'm going to make an abiding place for you in the future. And guess what? I'm going to come and I'm going to abide with you in the present. Same thing, different time. Now, it's important we know this because sometimes you can read verses 2 and 3 and think, Jesus Project, we're working epic mansion in the sky, right? Like, it's going to be this awesome building project. We're working on it, you know? And then some fundraising pitch. And, um, but like you have this sort of building mansion in the sky. But if you remember verse 2 and 3, it's about presence. What is he doing? He's preparing a place for them so that he can take them to what? Be with him. And what do we see in verse 23? What is he doing? He is going to be with them in the present. They're going to abide together. Now, this isn't a mansion in the sky. In the larger echo, or sort of arc of the New Testament, what we see, right? You get to Revelation. This is what John, same John, this, he sees this vision of God coming and creating a he- new heaven and a new earth. And he says this, verse 3, uh, Revelation 21. God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Right? This isn't a mansion in the sky. This is God saying, I'm going to make my abiding place on earth with you as he makes all things new. Right? He created all things at the beginning, and he's going to remake all things in the end. And we'll things to do with him. Now, I thought it might be helpful at this point, because I've talked about a lot of different things, to do a little doodle to sort of help us understand where we are at, right? So you have upper room discourse. That is a table, lopsided, uh, with wine and bread. Uh, What we know is the next day, right, Jesus is crucified. So he's saying all these things. Within 24 hours, he will be crucified, uh, within like 72 hours, he will, there will be an empty tomb. Pretty good, right? Um, <laughs> and uh, he will then appear to the disciples and other people for 40 days. Upper room discourse, cross, empty tomb, appear for 40 days. Then what happens? Right? Jesus ascends to be with the Father. And then he, the, he sends the spirit down. This is a dove. It's going to be awesome. Beak. <laughs> so you have a, a dove descending. Right now you have this between. Right? And then it's going to be a little bit egg-shaped for an earth, but you'll get it. Right? He's narrating, right? Earth. New heaven, new earth. So this is sort of what he's narrating, right? This is the the scaffolding of this story. This is how it sort of fits, right? Upper room, cross, empty tomb, appears to them for a little while, right? He will ascend. What does he do? He's paracleting with the Father. 
the right hand of the Father, sends down the paraclete, then what happens, right? We have this between time, right? What happens here, right? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit will be in us, right? This is the between before the new, this is the abiding place, right? We become the abiding place of God. The Trinity comes to be with us. This is where Jesus says, right? Like, if you love me, you will follow my teaching. And what we're going to see in a minute is that the Spirit is going to be the one who helps us apply and understand, right, the teaching of Jesus in the Bible, right? He is going to be the one who will reveal that to us as the teacher before he comes in the fullness at the new creation. Does that make sense? Any questions? I'll pretend like no one raised their hand. All right. (laughs) So that is where we're at. These two verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. This arc, right? This framework. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. He's like, hey, I get it. You're not going to digest all of this instantly. Guess what? The helper's going to come and he's going to teach you. And he will do two things. They are interconnected, but also not totally identical. First, what is he going to help you do? Remember. Right? I've said all these things to you. Guess what? The helper is going to help you remember them. And John has actually already echoed at this a few times. If you remember back to chapter 2, he has said, Jesus teaches about the temple. And he's like, yeah, it's going to be destroyed in three days, you know. And everyone's like, what? And John has this editorial comment. He says, and guess what? Later, they remembered what Jesus said. That's what the Holy Spirit does. They remember what he said, and then they see it with greater significance. This all also happens in John 12. It says, to triumphal entry, after Jesus was glorified, they understood what was going on. But to understand, the Holy Spirit helps them not only to recall facts, but to understand significance. Right? In this in-between, the Spirit is the one who helps us understand what is going on. The, also, the Spirit helps with teaching Right? Teach us all things. Now, this isn't new teaching. The Spirit doesn't provide new revelation. Right? So, if you're like, oh, the Spirit taught me that and it's totally contradicted by the Scriptures, you're probably not hearing from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit doesn't teach us new revelation. Right? The Spirit teaches us so that when we try and love God, we are actually able to fulfill the commandments because we understand the teaching of Jesus. So now we go back to verse 15. Oh, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we even know what the commandments are? Because the Spirit helps us to see them with new eyes and their significance so that we can love Jesus aright. Is it clicking? Coming together? And then he ends with this. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will 
come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced you before it takes place because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So it ends sort of funny, right? It's like, rise, let's go for me here. And then, by the way, there's two more chapters, right? Three, actually. So it's like, oh, what just happened, you know? So uh, shalom, my peace I give to you can be either a greeting or a farewell. Here it operates as a farewell. Shalom, let's rise without rising. So you have this sort of like feeling of they're about to leave. And then Jesus sort of echoes back to verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he adds on, and guess what? Don't be troubled. There's going to be a betrayal, a departure. There's going to be a denial. But don't let your hearts be troubled. And don't be afraid. He encourages them in the midst of this to keep trusting. I mean, just sort of enter into that for a minute. Like how profound this is. They've spent the last three years with this guy. They've given up things. And by the way, I'm beefed friendships, surely. They have prioritized Jesus above all things. And now he's like, and by the way, I'm leaving. And guess what? One of you, one of you is going to betray me. And one of you is going to deny me three times. Yeah, you, Peter, who they all admire. And he says, in the midst of that, in this confusion, right? They don't know he's going to be tortured and crucified and dead. In the midst of that, he says, don't lose heart. He invites them to trust. Then he has this statement, which I think is important because we're not going to spend a lot of time in it. We could, there's libraries full of this. Uh, This sort of the Trinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son, right? The Father is greater than I. Now, what we're going to do is just sort of contextually look at this, and we'll do it quickly. Uh, Throughout church history, the creeds and everything have said, hey, guess what? The Father and the Son are co-equal, right? They are unified. And we see this in John, right? John has said multiple times, Jesus has said multiple times, hey, the Father and I are one. But here he says, oh, and the Father is greater. And contextually, I think what we can see is that what Jesus means by that is the Father is the one who sends, The Father is the one, Jesus, he is the one who sends, right? The Father commands me and I do it. And in that sense, he is greater. He is the one who sends, he is the one who commands, he is the one that Jesus listens to and models his life and heart after. In that sense, he is greater. And then Jesus says this beautiful comment. He says, you know, and I have been sent that I might reveal the Father's love to the world. Jesus is commanded by the Father. The Father is greater. He is sent unto earth and the Spirit will be sent down. Why? To reveal the Father's love for the world. All right. So thanks for tracking with me through that. Now let's sort of lean into, this is the end of chapter 14. How does this relate to our everyday life with God? Right? It's one thing. It's cool. Have your theology out, take notes, awesome, rock it. But how does this actually relate to our everyday life 
with God. The first thing I want to emphasize and push into is this connection between love and fruit bearing, right? Love bears fruit. In our cultural moment, we really, there's sort of this push towards the disconnection of being and doing. I referred to this earlier. We like to think that sort of what we feel internally is our truest self, irrespective of like, oh, I love the world. Right? We like to say like, you know, this is the popular thing of like, oh, I love the world. It's like, that's awesome. But you're mean to your actual neighbor who's next to you. Right? So then we have this feeling of, oh, is he going to make it all the way? Oh, Nice. Good save. Um, right? We disconnect being from doing, so we have this feeling of, oh, I'm a good person because I feel like a good person, irrespective of whether I just was nasty to my actual neighbor or my coworker or my kid or whatever. And Jesus and the New Testament push on this a little bit. And I think one of the reasons Jesus frames this in such a dualistic way, like you're either in or you're out, is he wants to challenge us to take seriously that like out of our heart flow all kinds of different things. Now again, there's nuance here, right? Just focusing on our behavior isn't really the answer, right? The Pharisees tried this and he called them whitewashed tombs. That is not what we're going for. And clearly, Like, if you read Romans 7, you know, Paul is like, hey, there's things that I do that I don't want to do. There's a tension internally. But Jesus is pretty clear here. And I think if we are going to take seriously, Jesus says, if you love me, you will take seriously, basically, my teaching. This is his teaching. So let's take it seriously. He says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Who loves me? Anyone, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is it who loves me. Right? And then when we do that, God manifests himself. He reveals himself to us in our attempts at faithfulness. Now, I'm not saying this because I want us to feel guilty or shamed or bad. Because uh, I know, like, when I read this, I feel a little, like, uncomfortable. Right? Because I look at my life, and I don't see perfection. So then I start to get a little nervous. And maybe you're like me. So maybe you operate, one of the frames we often use is bounded set, centered set. And I think we often approach this text in a bounded set way. So if there's any area of my life, one thing, right, I'm out. Like, I don't love him, you know. And it's kind of paralyzing, actually, when we approach the text and Jesus in that way. Because then we look at our life. If we ever mess up, we're just like, I'm never going to be good enough. And then you're just like, why even try, you know. There's an element of truth here. This is part of the gospel, right? That we actually are never quite good enough. And Jesus, by his grace, transforms us from the inside out so that we can do things that we cannot do now because he is with us, empowering us, and transforming us. Another framework to use is what we call centered set. And I think this is a helpful frame when we talk about this passage and fruit bearing more generally. Jesus and his kingdom are in the middle. And the question, what you do, are you moving closer to him? Is your life What you do with your time and your money and your words, is it becoming more and more like Jesus over time? Are you moving closer to him in the way you live in the world? Or are you kind of going your own way? Jesus says if we love him, we will bear fruit, right? That is like the fruit he bore. We will pay attention to his teaching. And that teaching will shape us by the grace of the Spirit. We will be transformed in the kind of people that are more and more like Jesus. 
I just want to give you a second right now. You know, if you were to look at your life, can you think of one area in your life? Maybe it's with your time. Maybe it's with your money. Maybe it's with your words. One area where you're like, yeah, I'm off, off balance here. I could do a tweak. I want you to think about that. Take a second. Right? The Holy Spirit is here to teach us the way of Jesus. What does the Spirit say to you right now? It's like, ah, you could adjust in this way. Now I want you to think about that, and I want you to think of one person that you can tell. This is what I'm going to work on this week. Hours like this is what. And now I want you to tell that person after this service in the next 24 hours, like, this is what I'm going to work on. Now, if they, someone tells you, I want you now to make sure that in the next five or six days, you check in with them about how that went. If we're the kind of people that want to take seriously the teaching of Jesus, my guess is you can't do it alone. I certainly can't do it alone. We actually need help. But so often in our American culture, not only do we get paralyzed in our lack of perfection, but then we try and do it ourselves, and we just repeat in the same entrenched place of stuckness. What does it look like to recognize the areas where you could grow, invite others in, and then if you're the other who's invited in, actually be faithful to talking, circling back with that person. Don't let them hang if they've taken the risk to talk to you. Love bears fruit. Second thing I would say, uh, Jesus talks about the spirit as teacher. One of the funny things about our cultural moment is we have access to unlimited amounts of information, just like ridiculous amounts of information. So we get a book, we get a podcast, maybe 30, you know, and you're just sort of cycling through them. And you're also in our cultural moment, not only have access to tons of information, but we also are fascinated by new information. You're like, ooh, this is a new take on that. That's what I'm interested in. More and new way of doing that. A new theological twist, whatever, right? We're fascinated by more and new. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say the Spirit is going to teach us new things. The Spirit will help you remember and teach what Jesus taught. What if we actually prioritize this month? What if it's super practical? What is something that God has taught you in the last week? The last month? The last year? The last decade. What has God said? How has Jesus tried to shape and form you? What if you took some time this week just to go back to those things? Rather than moving on to the next, what if you really lived into what God has already taught you? So often we're fascinated by the new take. Oh, let's do this. But we've, we have not been very good at the very basic things. We're like fascinated by the PhD and we're skipping kindergarten oh, what does it look like to trust God with my morning? What does it look like to really love my neighbor well today? What has God taught you in the last month, in the last year? Go back to that this week and say, Spirit, help me to go deeper. I don't want to just superficial sort of skating around discipleship. I want to go deep. Reveal to me the depth of Jesus' teaching that I might be faithful to it. More faithful. More and new is great. Deeper, more faithful to how God is already working at us is better. Three. Abiding and fear. 
right? Verse 1 and verse 27, that kind of bookend the teaching, Jesus is like, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. And then it's almost always connected to his presence, right? Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to come back. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I will be with you. I'm going to make my home in you. But one of the things about fear, anxiety, worry, stress, whatever it is for you, is it almost always in our cultural moment is about distraction, right? So we feel these things, then what do we do? Distract ourselves. Ah, a pint of ice cream and Netflix, that'll help. Or like, I'm just going to busy myself with stuff around the house. But one of the things we are not very good at doing is actually slowing down into the abiding presence of God, who is with us, by the way, and bring that fear, worry, concern into the presence of God and actually be comforted. What would it look like for you this week when you had anxiety come up, when you had worry come up, when you felt stressed, rather than like our go self in whatever your way is, we all have two or three if we're honest, like our go-to distraction, right? The fridge, random chores, I don't know, work, We have all these distractions built in. What if you just said, all right, I'm feeling something. I'm, I'm actually feeling, my heart is troubled. Recognize it and then say, okay, I'm, first thing I'm gonna do before I distract myself, I'm gonna take 10 minutes. And I'm just gonna return to Psalm 23 and I'm just gonna say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. God, I just wanna be with you in this moment. Help me, I'm afraid. Like, what could God do in that place if we were actually slowing down into his presence in that moment? Maybe we'd experience what it feels like to not have our hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. I am the abiding place of safety where you can retreat in a world that is broken. I'm gonna invite the worship team up and what we're gonna do is we're just gonna lean into some of this stuff Right, worship is not just about singing songs. Maybe you like one of the songs, maybe you don't, but these are words that we can sing as a way of saying, God, this is who you are. This first song we're going to sing is about how beautiful a name God has. Right, that God is good. And I think actually the starting place of trust, the starting place of love is this place of saying to God, God, I can trust you. You are good. You are beautiful. And as we lean into worship, let's lean into the presence of God who, guess what, is abiding here with us. Holy Spirit, good Father, faithful Jesus, we just say you are here in this place. You are abiding in us, that you are with us. And in this moment, we just submit to you. We let go of all the things that distract us. We again just submit our lives to you and say, help us, teach us, comfort us. You are good, you are glorious. May we know you this morning. Take us deeper. God, we don't want to settle for the things that we've always known. We want to go deeper into what you have taught us. We want to lean in in a deeper, in a deeper way. Come to the broken places and heal us. 
come to those places in our minds and our hearts where we have questions. We want to love you, God. We want to love you. Meet us as we turn to song and into worship.